welcome to episode 7 of the Perfusion Data Podcast, uh, the show that is statistically more likely to help you understand how data is applied in the real world. That is not specific enough. That needs to be... Um that needs to be operationalized. The show, our calibrated belief state, will have an 80% likelihood of making you better understand how data is applied in the real world if you listen to a randomly chosen episode. Better equals in a noticeable way, and I'm going to go with one-third of a standard deviation increase in any reasonable examination of your understanding. But same idea. David, that's way less catchy. I'm Edric Normark, Director of Science, Data, and Innovation at Profusion, and so far in the series we've talked to data leaders from the public sector, the charity sector, and huge multinational corporations. If you haven't listened to any of them, go back and listen. But today, we're talking cybersecurity with Cyber Eagles Podcast, and joining cool, me... Cool. <laughs> as always, is my co-host, David Reinstein, uh, Senior Economist at Rethink Priorities. How are you doing, David? Great, great. I got a zip-off coat for $30 at Marshall's, so I'm doing very well. Staying nice and warm. How about yourself? Well, I've just moved into my new flat here in Victoria. I had been a bit of a nomad over the last couple of months, just staying in Airbnbs. So it's really, really, really nice to finally have a space of my own ever since mm. I, I left London. Have a nice hot shower, yeah? Yes, I've also been building a lot of furniture, which uh, I find incredibly boring, but, um, you know, one must do these things. Yeah, I think so. I think you do. And other thing you need to do is to, in terms of getting your house in order, you also need to get your security house in order so you don't get fished or smished or slished. Uh, on the internet, you don't want to be fall prey to scams, and I think that uh, that's something that businesses have to care about too. Governments have to care about. Uh, we we need to keep an eye on these things. But luckily, we have a pair of eagles that we're going to be talking to today. That's right, our cyber eagle friends from the Cyber Eagles podcast, Oscar and Nadia, will be telling us about all things just cybersecurity. And uh, we'll even get to talk a little bit about geopolitics, uh, some of the stuff going on between Russia and Ukraine, which I know is very topical at the moment. This may affect us in our own lives, even, it, it seems. And, you know, that we're all part, I think we're all part of an ecosystem tied to the internet and security. And if there's going to be, I mean, let's hope that there's not, but if there's going to be a war, in a sense, we're all involved in that conflict if the conflict is happening on the internet. Okay, let's see what happened when we met Oscar O'Connor and Nadia El-Fertazi. Let's do. Welcome to the show, Oscar Nadia. Thanks for joining us. How are you both doing today? Very well. Thank you for having us. Um, uh, Pleasure. I'm from Brussels, uh, Belgium, New York of Belgium, as I call it. And I love New York, so it's a compliment. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you wouldn't know it, but I'm wearing a I Love Brussels t-shirt under this uh, vinyl here. So it's, oh, wow. yeah, I never get these jokes right. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like we have quite a geographical spread. You're in Brussels then, and Oscar, I'm assuming you're in the UK? I am. I'm about um, 10 kilometers outside of Oxford, which is where I grew up. But I also spent um, five years living in Brussels in the mid-90s, which is not where I met Nadia, but um, we met on a actually on a webinar for the She CISO exec earlier, early last year. And um, we've found a kind of common 
train of thought around looking at cybersecurity from a human perspective. And one thing led to another, and um, we ended up making a podcast, which has been hugely entertaining to, to make, and hopefully some people have found it entertaining to listen to. That's great. So tell us a little bit more about your podcast. I know it's called Cyber Eagles. And tell us also a little bit about your backgrounds too, just cool. for the audience. doesn't We haven't really introduced okay. ourselves. No. Um, okay, so a bit of background on me. I, I joined the world of IT in the early 1980s and got into the management consulting in the early 90s and, and ended up running a, a risk assessment of the the economic infrastructure of Europe, Middle East and Africa during the run-up to the year 2000. And that kind of moved me into risk management and business continuity and cybersecurity because they're all so closely related. And I've basically been doing that for the last sort of 25 years. Nadia, how about you? Yes, a little bit about me. So I come from uh, the NATO background. I've worked there for nearly two decades. So I'm still well conserved, as you can see. Well, the audience has to believe my word, but the host can see it. And I always worked in the area of digital transformation and cybersecurity, but from a people-centric, so from a governance level. How do we uh, help implement healthy security culture both for internal stakeholders, and I was working a lot with member nations and policy. Mm. And after almost two decades, I decided uh, uh, I wanted to uh, soar high in the sky like the eagle. Eagle is one of my favorite birds and also Oscars. That's how we linked it. bird. Uh, yeah. With the, it's our with national the, bird, actually, is, eagle, is yeah. the bald, bald eagle, I believe. Yeah. It's the only bird that seeks storms. So all the other birds hide when there is a storm. And only the only one that seeks storms to fly above it. So there are many interesting analogies, I think, when you talk about security and crisis management. So I, I, I leverage all the know-how, the practitioner know-how of, of security, culture, crisis management, and uh, leverage the science of emotional intelligence because I'm fascinated by people and their behaviors and how emotions actually also drive our response options in the, in translating what it means, right? What it means from a human perspective. And um, yeah, now with COVID and the pandemic, it has gotten a lot of uh, attention and importance because not everyone is a cyber or IT expert, but everyone is dealing with it ramification of digital disruption. So Nadia, on that point, I'd really like to understand why you guys chose to focus on that uh, human aspect of cybersecurity. I think for a lot of us, we tend to think of cybersecurity as a rather technical subject, but uh, obviously any subject has both a human side and a technical side. Uh, so, so why did you choose that focus for your podcast? I, I think that there's cybersecurity has always been multidimensional, right? It has never been just technical. There's always been on the governance level, what it means for the external, you know, legal ramification, insurance policy. How do we secure our information and how do we work together? And uh, perhaps the perception was that it's, it's only technical, only technical firewalls, or technical solution. I think what happened now with COVID that the the spotlight has become bigger, right? The threat is exaggerated because many people are using online technology and many people are motivated to either make more money 
or for you know politically motivated for all kinds of different reasons to commit crime, even if it's petty crime or serious crime that was done in the streets, to now do it in the cyber world online, which brings a whole issues of uh, complications, obviously. And this is why uh, we chose to focus on the human element to make it more practical, more understandable, and uh, without fear-mongering. I think the, the, the thing I would like to add to that is that um, coming from a, a technical background, yeah, I started as a programmer and went through all kinds of different guises in technology. And one of the, the great failings, I think, of the IT industry, the IT sector as a whole, is in communication. And this kind of, I, I don't quite know where it, where it came from, but the desire for IT to be seen by its practitioners or by those who don't understand it as, as some kind of mysterious black art that, that you know, it, you've got to be some kind of magical being to, to do really good stuff in IT and information security. It helps. And actually it's an engineering discipline. You know, let, let's be completely honest. It's an engineering discipline. And if you get it, if you do the engineering bits, right, you, know, you design, you plan, you, you test, you, you work out before you do something what you're supposed to do. You can do it much better. It, it's not, you know, very few people have the ability to code off the top of their heads, for example. I mean, some do, but they're by far and away the outliers. And because we have, as an industry, not been good at communicating, we have focused on preaching to the choir. We talk to each other. We sit in echo chambers. Mm. And actually, as Nadia so rightly says, this is not a technical problem. It has technical aspects to it. It is a human problem, and it's humans well, that are the key. Sorry, David. No, no, I just want, I just want to uh, engage with you a bit. So, I mean, you talk about this a lot on your podcast, the, the human issues. Um, you mention things. You talk a lot about people being distracted, okay? And you say, I mean, I'm, I like to make things very concrete. So I want some examples from you. I want examples of everything that, that you've brought up. So you say more people are engaged in cybercrime now because of the coronavirus. Do, do you have, do we have numbers on that? Do you have a theory for why that if, and, and if that is true, do you have a theory for why that is? Are you saying people just have more time on their hands to start messing with things? I, I, I if I can yeah. leap in there, Nadia, I think the, do we have, um, you know, scientifically reputable evidence to support the, the assertion? No. No, it, it is an impression. It's Okay. It, okay. But, but it's, it, it's, it seems like a reasonable conclusion based on the fact that for many countries around the world, particularly technolo technologically advanced countries, there have been mandated lockdowns which have prevented people from going out, going to places of business, going out to shops because mm. they've been closed. And lots of the activity that had previously taken place in physical environments moved online. Um, even though That's you know, true. I, I worked in, I've worked in it throughout this period. And all the only difference was where I sat. My working pattern actually didn't change at all. I just didn't have to commute into London. I could do it all here, yeah. but with so much more happening online, many more people have been set up to work remotely and those those new facilities have generally been set up in a, a really big hurry and when you do I things see. in a hurry you leave 
potentially you you leave doors open for for miscreants to do nasty stuff. I just wanted to add. I th- I think it's a, a no brainer to 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 see that because of the disruption that the pandemic has caused, and that because many people are working online, the human service attack has grown. So I wrote a, an article for the Global Cyber Alliance where I share numbers between forty and fifty percent of uh, surveys done in the UK and the US of people actually falling prey or are likely falling prey for social engineering attacks because of distraction and stress who clicked more on links or who f- fell prey for social engineering attacks. So, sorry, just, just to get this right, you're saying yeah. of those who fell prey, 40% reported feeling distracted. That, is that right? Yes. And is that, do you, do you know how that compares to, well, we could, okay, I'm being scientific here, but I could compare that to what if I just asked people who weren't, who didn't fall prey, how many of them reported being distracted? And also, do we know that that's greater after the pandemic? Well, I don't think it's necessarily to uh, to look at it from, you know, an issue of uh, who is more susceptible to fall prey or who is not susceptible to fall mm-hmm. prey. The issue and cyber criminals are changing their tactics to circumvent technology that organizations are implementing and looking for human vulnerabilities, right? Already because of the increase of technology, they are now, and there is uh, um, uh, several articles that have been published on this, they're using language and words that trigger people's fear emotion, for example. So to mm. get more prone to click on smishing, right? Getting a text. This was very evident with COVID, with the public health. Can you you give some examples? What what sorts of of things might we find? We're talking about things in our inbox, getting us to click on links in our inbox. Inbox, mobile phones. Mobile phones, of course, yeah. So what sort of messages come through that that prey on people's fears? That's really interesting. Hacks, right? I was... uh, uh, Mm almost a victim myself because uh, you get uh, very uh, real um, text messages to check your account. You know, you have outstanding text bills or one of the the, the rising uh, smishing, it's called for SMS, was for because of COVID, right? Getting people to actually click on links because of health situation. So they really are mm-hmm. at, you know, the, the, the prevalent affair trends. By the way, I think you said smissing sms smishing phishing for with an sms is smishing you know, right phishing is when you get an email that is actually a spoofed email phishing yeah. is for a mobile text phone so you get yeah SMS. that's what i that's what i thought but what i think is really actually kind of interesting in terms of this fear stuff and super clever is the meta aspect of it the layer what i mean is that very often the actual phishing emails or smishers that, that's a cool new word is actually telling me that i've been attacked Right, it's saying, "Quick, call here! You've been cyber attacked. We think your account's under compromise." So it's almost like you can almost think: the more I make people aware of cyber attack, the more vulnerable I'm making them to those sort of fear mongerings. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and that that is that is so common. I, I, I I'm working with a client at the moment. We've just done the quarterly phishing test, and a a rather larger than predicted number of people clicked on the link in the phishing test so the the email looked like it came from microsoft saying you've deleted a whole bunch of stuff from your OneDrive. it'll stay in your inbox for 93 days it's a fairly unusual number you might want to kind of or it'll stay in your your recycle bin for 93 days and the email address it came from was completely spurious um but of of those who clicked on the link, every single one of them clicked on it more than once. 
which is very peculiar behavior when the phishing the link takes you to a page that says you've been fished this is what you shouldn't be doing i think this i think this this these examples really do a lot to demonstrate the importance of the the human side of the cybersecurity equation i'm wondering in your consulting work what is it from again a human centered point of view that you find that uh, companies fail to understand or understand poorly and which is perhaps putting them at greater risk uh, is it perhaps like maybe a blind faith that you know this technological solution is going to like solve all my cybersecurity problems the the silver bullet approach to cybersecurity buy my shiny thing with lots of flashing lights and everything will be fine yes the industry has used jedi mind tricks for a, a number of decades to try and persuade people to buy their thing and you know the the idea that one piece of kit is going to solve every problem it, it, i mean it's just nonsense it's completely unrealistic and completely unfair to to expect anyone to be able to do that and you know to to look at something so complex so sophisticated so many different aspects to it as if it's something you can solve with technology alone um yeah since when has any problem been solved by technology alone yeah i think we've got we've had some nice nice problems solved by technology haven't we i, li- I like technology I we're, love talking, technology. we're using it to communicate with each other aren't we we, Can you tell us are, but but I, I would say that the the ways in which technology solves problems is because people use it in the ways it was intended to be used, and they have to be brought to the point of understanding how to make the technology do what it's meant to do. I can't think of a single piece of technology in the in the certainly in the IT and information okay. security okay. space that will do anything without human interaction. You know, a seatbelt will keep you safe if you have an accident in the car so long as it's being used correctly mm. and for generations people either didn't use them didn't have them or you know maybe didn't didn't put them on correctly and so put themselves at unnecessary risk but i mean there are some things that do come from the top like okay these are they're just random examples Chlor- chlorine and fluoride in our water right we have a a defense force protecting our our whatever our, our borders we have police protecting okay maybe that's police not the best example but uh are there top-down security solutions that that the government can help us with that companies can put in place and like get and if to the extent that those have been tried and failed can you give an example of a case where a company tries that and, and it's failed because people have you know been anti-vaxxers with respect to this technology let's say I think if I may jump in, just a very quick note. I think technology is important to reduce human firewall, right? Because I think if you know there are technological solutions available so people, it's more difficult to fall for scams or, mm. or social engineering attacks. Mm. But I think one of the challenges that I've uh, faced and uh, is terminology, right? When I speak about cyber and emotional intelligence, people, you know, Cognitive, cognitive dissonance, right? They, they don't get the link. But when I speak about human resilience and cybersecurity, then people get the link because of how do we build a more 
alert, more focused, more uh, uh, empowerment, right? If you speak about human vulnerability, it's kind of weak, right? How can you help people ask more questions, right? Especially when we see the surge of the ransomware attacks. I think this is another issue where human-centric solutions are very important because if they use data on your family or on something that you consider a scandal, right? And then no matter what technology or no matter you are, you know, willing to pay. We saw, I think, with the colonial pipeline attack that the decision to pay was made within a very short time frame. I don't know exactly the short time frame. And there's an ongoing investigation now because of the repercussions of the those decisions and what it meant, you know, across uh, the supply chains and all the other ripple effects. Basically, colonial pipeline transports about 70% of the oil that the eastern seaboard of the United States needs. Um, and a ransomware attack on the business systems. So not an attack on the on the pipeline management system, just on the business. Billing system, yeah. Um, caused them to to um, lose one of the facilities they lost was the ability to keep records of how much oil was being pumped, yes. which meant that they, if they carried on pumping oil, they couldn't charge for it. So they switched it off. So I think this is something to, to be really you know, taking into consideration on how we rethink it, not necessarily as just a cybersecurity, but information safety culture. And I think when you come, when you, when you uh, a lot of organizations, when you read, you know, the news, the, 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 the struggle or the assumption is that the C-suite, the business leaders, don't understand cyber, right? So it is how do you translate cybersecurity as a business risk before a cyber breach occurs? Often uh, people tend to change when they have felt the pain of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a crisis, which, you know, doesn't have to be that way. I do think there was a report issued by IBM 2021 on the on the threat reports that says that you know the and World Economic Forum that business leaders are putting cyber resilience as a higher priority. It has to be from the top down as well. If it doesn't come from the top down, how can you model and implement the culture that everyone will uh, at least try their best to follow? Well, thinking about this trend um, in business of doing more and more of our uh, data science, data infrastructure, everything on the cloud, whether that's AWS or uh, Google Cloud or, or, or whatever. As cybersecurity experts, is, does that seem like a sound thing to do? I mean, obviously, there's economies of scales to be had by outsourcing all of that to people who are experts in this, but perhaps it also presents new risks. This has been a long-running debate in the IT sector since you know, the idea of cloud services first emerged, and you know, they get more sophisticated year by year. But you know, ten years ago, when they were just beginning to sort of start being talked about, um, it would it was a very brave CIO who said, "Right, this is the way of the future. Let's go to cloud." Um, there is now almost nothing that you can do in your own data center that you can't do more efficiently in a cloud environment. There are many things that that you can rely on in a cloud environment that you would have to go to very expensive lengths to achieve in your own data center. So when, when we talk about resilience in IT terms, 
Um, that means very high availability. So you know, minimal, minimal amounts of downtime, data re residing in at least two locations with backups in a third location. And if you're supplying all of that kit, you've got to buy you know, lots and lots of equipment. You've got to host it in, in different places. You've got to buy the communication links between them. And whilst you are still you know, contributing towards the costs of all of that infrastructure, so much investment has is spread over so many users that it is much more cost effective to go down that route as a, a single organization than you ever would have had a chance to do before. And it is much easier because so much of the security functionality is switch this on or not, switch that on or not. And when it's on, you can then tune it. But yeah. the availability of security functionality in these environments is so much better than in your own data center because in your own data center, you have to buy the piece of kit that does that and the piece of software that does that. Instead, in Amazon and Azure and so on, these are just options. They're all there. You you just have to also have to have the internal expertise of IT experts well, who know how yeah, to set how, up. All how this much does yeah, let's let's put this in sort of you know, easy context? You know, as a relatively small organization, how much does Profusion have the ability to spend on security technology and research compared to Microsoft, Google, and Amazon? Yeah, they spend billions. Are we really going to, you know, like listening to conspiracy theories saying, I did my own research. So, yeah, two hours on Facebook and Google does <laughs> not beat a research degree, you know. Um, the, these these organizations have, you know, yes, they have huge ethical issues. They have huge business conduct issues from many perspectives. They are almost monopolies, and that's worrying from lots of different views. But if you want a secure, cost-effective environment with the ability to evolve the security of that environment with the threats that continue to emerge, a cloud environment is a much better place for you to be than in your own data center. Nadia. I just wanted to give an anecdote from uh, my NATO time because I was working for the NATO Communication Information Agency. So we were working actually with a lot of restricted information already on the cloud through VPN and the USB token. When we had the move from the old NATO HQ to the new NATO HQ, so we had to implement a whole new information technology and modernization on the cloud. And one of the challenges was the cultural change, right? If you as an organization are used to working with different networks, very static or very secure, or a lot, printing a lot of paper and when it comes to especially, you know, policy meeting, etc., it, it took uh, a lot of trial and, 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 and uh, you know, experimentation and validation and rethinking and how the human will adopt in a safe and secure way while mm. traveling, accessing NATO restricted, NATO confidential or information and, and not having, you know, when the patients get, uh, if you're out of patient and you need a document that you use your Gmail account, right, which actually I did a recent training and I have multiple um, authentication factors before entering the, the cloud, etc. And I get complaints from the participants because it takes a lot of time to go through <laughs> all these uh, steps and they don't like it, etc. Yes. 
and it's not you know something that I, I, I tend to ignore, but it is an, an important you know mindset shift. How much are we trading security against speed, right, or comfort? Uh, yes. I mean, I guess this this the the for the most secure things. I mean, if if it's already going to be passed from computer to computer and people taking their work home, probably using a for at least for a small firm using a, a cloud server will be more secure than trying to set something set up their own servers but for the most secure things we just have a secure room where the data is stored and only certain people are allowed to walk in or walk out right i mean and, and i don't know how much how much that actual sort of traditional way of things of keeping the the, the jewels of security is still relevant and used in business i'm sure it's yeah. certainly still used in government right the, well, it's funny you should say that because three months ago, GCA, the government communications headquarters in the UK, so the UK's electronic spy agency signed a contract with, with Amazon to host up to top secret information on a private cloud that Amazon would support. So the difference there is that instead of it being in GCHQ's data center, it will be in Amazon's data center. It will have additional physical security protections the infrastructure won't be shared with anybody else and it will only be accessible from you know known net and trusted networks but you know the the whole concept of putting things in a secure room because that way they're safer in a hyper-connected world no longer really has any relevance because the particularly with people collaborating over geographical distance, availability is becoming much more important than it, it ever used to be. Certainly in government circles, confidentiality was considered everything, absolutely everything, until everyone had to work at home. Mm. I mean, I still think that the, I'm sure that there's some state secrets that people aren't working at home on. I mean, how can that not be the case, right? Well, must, yeah. There must yeah. still be some things that are in the secure... Uh, one hopes. NATO, we had like class one, class two areas, and actually people were vetted. So it was taken very seriously. We had a very extensive background check. And if you even had a higher level of security clearance, it was even more intense, right? And they looked into everything you did and how you operated. And of course. Everything. So it was... Um, uh, you didn't. You wasn't actually very proud to have such a high level of security because it came with a lot of responsibility. But one of the the, the things that was very clear that that certain information, even hearing, for example, NATO secret or NATO confidential, you were you know shivers up your spine, <laughs> and they're like, "This is serious, right?" And it was just a re an automatic reflex for the people working in that uh, environment. Okay. Well, uh, on that subject, uh, we will actually be talking a little bit more about current situation with Russia and Ukraine after our break. We're just going to pause briefly uh, for a new segment, uh, which is Meet the Team, where a member of the Perfusion staff tell us about their experiences at Perfusion. So over to you. I'm Anne Yuba. I'm the Chief of Staff at Profusion. So, as you might have guessed from my accent, I'm German. I came over to England three years ago. And before, I worked for quite a few 
different industries. And what I really like about working at Profusion is that you get exposure to all kinds of different areas of the business. We, for example, have a philanthropical arm, CARES, where we do volunteering and fundraising and stuff. So we can... Uh, work with the young people and yeah and that's what I really like and I think that I also I'm the same way in my private life um I I really like exploring new kinds of sports so I did calisthenics in the past I did boxing in the past um I've always been dancing for example uh, I did hip-hop dancing we even danced to German hip-hop um and yeah it's really good you might not believe me but <laughs> I promise check it out <laughs> A typical day of profusion would start with a nice kitchen chat. <laughs> Whoever you can find in the kitchen um, while you make your tea or coffee or breakfast. And uh, then you jump right in to the first meetings or projects. You would probably pass our data science team and see someone playing the guitar or writing really complex, weird formulas on some boards. Not at the same time, but... <laughs> We could get there. Uh, there are about 20,000 solved Rubik's Cubes <laughs> in that department. So feel free to grab one and mix it up again or try to solve it. We love a competition. So uh, at times our social committee would organize cooking evenings or um, art evenings, gallery nights, where everybody had to contribute something. And usually once they get competitive, things get a bit out of hand. But yeah, essentially... We don't only um, paint at work, we also work quite hard. Um, and that's what it makes so nice because everybody is really proud of their work. They all want to develop and grow and be their best possible self. So it's a really inspiring um, environment where you can bring in all your your own ideas and you can yeah create our future or the future of our business. I think what makes Profusion different is that uh, we have this really open and inclusive culture. We have a really international team and we try to hire really good talent that takes some time sometimes but it's really worth it. We are really close um, I think employees are really friendly with each other no matter if you have a question for an apprentice or the CEO you can go to anyone and ask your questions and you will get them answered and with a smile and I think that's that's really quite motivating and I think there's so much more to come and even though you don't have German rap over here I'm so really happy that I'm part of the company now and uh, yeah if anyone wants uh, to chat about German hip-hop come and talk to me in the kitchen I've got an excellent playlist ready for you Welcome back, everybody. Uh, so in a minute, we'll get back to those questions on cybersecurity and cyber warfare and of the current geopolitical situation. But before we get into that, um, from my own experience, I know that data science can be a pretty intangible and difficult thing to sell. And from listening to your podcast, it sounds like cybersecurity might be in a similar boat. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your experience with selling cybersecurity solutions and the challenges that arise in doing so? Wow, what a question. So when I started in this sector in the late 1990s, early 2000s, the, the primary message that vendors of security solutions used was 
spreading fear, uncertainty, and doubt, FUD, um, in order to scare people into spending money on the silver bullet that will solve their problem. And of course, that was all hogwash. The sophistication of the buying community has moved on, clearly. And there is a much greater understanding now and much more pressure from boards to sort out cybersecurity, even if they don't necessarily fully understand the scope of the term, because um, generally speaking, you, it's easier to get money for kits than it is for you know advice and training and, and, and communications and so on, even though they're all equally important. I think there's, there's also, since the introduction of the, the combined code on corporate governance in the UK and the likes of the Sarbanes-Oxley legislation in the States, there's a generally broader acceptance that explicitly managing risk is important to organisations. So instead of kind of winging it or keeping your, your risk management under the covers and just pretending it's part of what we do all the time, kind of uncovering that we must be seen to manage risk as well as actually managing risk. And if in a, a, an organisation cybersecurity isn't on your your risk register, then then clearly something has gone terribly wrong. And what we need to do is understand from the perspective of the client what the the key cybersecurity issues are for them, the key resilience issues, the key risk issues, and tune the the overall solution to their specific goals. Because you know, as we've we've touched on at various points in this discussion, and we we talk about in the Cyber Eagles podcast quite a lot, is that you know, there is no kind of average organisation. Mm. You can describe one, but it doesn't actually exist, just like the average human doesn't actually exist. Yes. And we, you know, each of us, each organisation has different threats. That it depends on what they do, where they are, who's invested in them. There are all kinds of different reasons why you might be targeted, but for the overwhelming majority of organisations, you're very unlikely to be targeted. So you're, that doesn't mean you're safe. It means that you're only going to be affected by the broadcast, let's just try and see who we can attack type of attack. Okay. Just add, I think we also need to take into consideration the concept of sales and how it has evolved, especially after, you know, I think the, the COVID, where a lot of people have gone online or have become an entrepreneur and do a lot of selling which is often seen as spamming, right? So I think coming from myself, I before I was an entrepreneur, I was you know, almost two decades a civil servant, public servant. So I already had a mindset of value proposition. Interestingly enough, ironically enough, I became an entrepreneur, but I was very uncomfortable with selling. <laughs> I never liked selling. I liked teaching and adding, you know, value and, and helping solving problems. So I think in, for any service in general, instead of seeing it as uh, 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 how can I sell as much as possible? How do I build a relationship? How do I, you know, really tone in the problem? And am I the right person or the right fit? Or is my service or product, you know, when it comes to data science as well, the right uh, service to help the clients? And when you believe it 100%, 
it's not even selling, it's you're really, you know, helping other people uh, overcome the challenge. So I think that is one element. The other element, I think, uh, uh, how one of the things that I do is I always offer, you know, a webinar, say, okay, these are the challenges, these are the problems, and this is how emotional intelligence, how emotional firewalls, how healthy security cultures can help you help people do things differently at work and, and build a security culture that is not only the responsibility of IT, but information safety is the responsibility of all business units. And this is how you can communicate it to different disciplines and different peoples. And that's how then people, you know, you have to explain things and talk about this a lot in our cyber eagles. You have to seek to understand before being understood and speak from, meet people where they are, speak in their language. It's so fascinating hearing you both talking about creating uh, a cybersecurity culture, which is the same problem that we have with data science. like, let's create a data culture with an organization, taking that consultative approach, um, because this whole idea of like a one size fits all type of solution very, very rarely works. Like, I mean, of course, it's all of our dreams, like create like a nice <laughs> product that's standardized and you can just, you know, get your sales team to flog left and right to everybody. But that very, very rarely works. Like you, you need people to adapt things to the particular context and situation at hand and, having people handhold stuff. And sometimes there's internal stakeholders who are able to do some of that or all of that. Um, but more often than not, at least what I've seen in my work at Perfusion is that, yeah, you, you absolutely need that uh, consultative and, and sometimes rather bespoke touch. Anyway, so I think now is uh, would be a good time to move on to our geopolitics question. David? Um, I know you were quite keen to ask about this. <laughs> well, let, let's pretend we were we were making a nice smooth transition from our, our. I know that when we were talking about, I don't know what the technical word for that is, but you know, the storage of data in one place with a door lock on the door, fingerprints, access, whatever. Nadia mentioned her work at at NATO, and of course, I think that's how it was done, and probably, I, I guess, I would hope, is continued to be done for the most secure information at the government level. Anyways, that, that made me think about how interesting it was that, that you had a background in cybersecurity and at NATO, Nadia. And uh, that's uh, obviously very relevant right now because NATO is very much in the headlines again because of the looming, well, some would say a looming threat of the Russian Empire, uh, the Russian Federation. And um, there's a lot of signs pointing towards a possible conflict in the Ukraine, which is terrible. And one thing that that brings up to me is the, the discussion within that context has a lot been about, okay, well, maybe there won't be a hot war between NATO and Russia, but maybe there'll be some sort of other thing other than actual boots on ground, you know, firing at each other. Cyber attacks come up a lot. And or the the idea of tr various things like denial of service or trying to shut down certain infrastructure, and I think some of that cyber attacks might also affect businesses and individuals. And I'm wondering, um, what should businesses and individuals be worried about, as well as governments, in terms of cyber attacks coming from Russia or from pseudo state aligned actors in Russia? What have you seen of that, and what should we? What can we do? in particular, to prevent being vulnerable to that, let's say? That's an excellent question. 
And um, I think the first thing I would say is disinformation, right? This information is a, is a cyber hybrid warfare technique. Uh, this is not the first time that, that Russia is, uh, is on the border of another country. If we go back to Estonia a decade ago and then Georgia. Mm. So uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's something that is, uh, uh, has happened before. And I think we've been here before. The big difference in my personal view is the, the context, right? A decade, we were not facing a pandemic. Now we are facing a pandemic. People are tired, most of, of people, right? Not, not everyone. But there is a lot of information overwhelm. There's a lot of digital overwhelm. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, everyone uh, saying something, what to believe, who to believe. And one of the tactics that uh, countries such as Russia has always used, also in, in other areas, is the divide and rule principle. And I know we know the divide and rule principle is to actually use information that is not based on fact, but based on what people you know would trigger fear or what they want to hear to cause chaos, to cause confusion, and then to you know um, uh, create opposing perceptions, right? We face this at NATO a lot. We always had anti-disinformation campaigns. Uh, uh, as well in place, but they, they are only as successful to a certain point. So I think the first thing I would say, disinformation and be very, for businesses, be very clear about how are you helping your people be always aware, right? Critical thinking, transparency, uh, communication, internal communication policies as well. If I could just, just to clarify, because I think it's, to me, I sort of think of these as two different categories. One is cyber attacks. So, you know, someone allied with the state in Russia or potentially supported by a state government or not even could try to shut down sites, could try to scramble information so it's unclear who owes what to whom, shutting down systems. On the other end is the disinformation campaign, which obviously was very much in the news and and in the context of the United in the context of the United States and our elections. Um, as well as perhaps the coronavirus. Are you saying those are somehow connected to each other? I'm just trying to think what specific attacks should we be looking out for? So you actually anticipated, uh, if I may very quickly, Oscar, my second uh, point. Um, but I, I think it's really important to, to mention this information because this is their, it's, it's a tactic they use and uh, really to influence opinions. Now, when it comes to cyber attacks, space, state-sponsored cyber attacks, it's important to understand NATO as an institution. And NATO has a magnificent, I used to work there, cyber operations center, really sophisticated in defending you know, any cyber attack. So 24-7 uh, operating. I think never even got the news. But this is one element. Then you have member nations who have their own cyber operations centers as well, both you know, defensive and offensive uh, uh, capabilities, so, which is our sovereign, is national. So uh, when it comes to um, diverting uh, cyber attacks, there is a lot of sophistication and work taken very seriously going on both in NATO as an institution, NATO as an operational command, and also NATO as an individual, right? And they work closely with businesses as well. Now, without... Without giving away, obviously, you know, everything's confidential and you can't talk about things, but, but is there a extent to it, to extent to this is already in the public domain to which you could give us some understanding of what those activities and 
countermeasures look like? I have, actually don't have a good sense of it. Maybe Oscar wants to join in there. Yeah, I, I think if you, if you look back through the examples that Nadia gave, so in Estonia a decade ago, mm-hmm. there were there was a concerted denial of service attack against the entire government web infrastructure, so taking websites offline. Simultaneously, there were invasive attacks on every bank that operates in Estonia with the intention of disrupting systems, making data unavailable, disrupting the payment processes and so on. When um, you move on to Georgia, where before the Russian army committed troops to answering a call for help from um, South Ossetia in very large inverted commas. Yeah, I thought so. Um, the communications infrastructure of that part of Georgia was taken offline by um, actors based in the Russian Federation. So no telephones, no internet, all stopped. So there was no way for people close to the border to phone a friend and say, uh, by the way, I've just seen 500 Russian tanks driving past my door. Mm. If you then move forward to uh, the Ukraine, the I, I don't know if you remember the NotPetya uh, malware incident of a few years ago, it's five, five or so years ago, uh, that took Merck offline, the drugs bar- the drugs organization, pharmaceutical company rather, um, that has just won a court case to get $1.4 billion from their insurers which is what they spent to recover from ransomware that had been embedded in a piece of software that is used almost exclusively in Ukraine. The the malware was inserted by actors uh, in Russia. We, you know, this is, this is not speculation. It's fact. And the, um, the resulting ransomware incident and um, repercussions took, for example, the world's biggest shipping line. They lost their entire network in six minutes, Maersk. So what you see um, or what we have seen is attacks on the government communications infrastructures, the public communications infrastructures, the banking system, and, you know, unintended consequences of trying to disrupt the economic activity within a particular target nation have all been the prelude to what could have turned into, and in some cases has turned into, a kinetic boots-on-the-ground kind of warfare. The NotPetya incident um, was timed very nicely when you think of when Crimea was annexed, for example. There is an overlap there. These things, this may be a coincidence, but hey, I'm a bit skeptical about that. Suppose, sorry, Nadia, you had something to add. Well, to come back to your question, I think one, how is NATO combating this? So, NATO has situational uh, awareness centers, right? So, I think intelligence sharing is very important. It's very contagious as well because no one likes to share information. But and when it comes to how what businesses can do, and, you know, keeping up to date information sharing, connecting to their national governments as well is very important just to be aware of the common uh, sort of attacks that are being carried on. But coming back to disinformation, inform staff, because what also happens with these attacks, lone wolves, copycats, people who are not 
they sponsored, right? But they are inspired by this or they ride on the bandwagon of the current uh, tension will also uh, inflict uh, probably cyber attacks by using phishing, social engineering. I mentioned smishing as well. So that people are just, when something looks off or when they feel like, wow, to really use critical thinking, right? To breathe and know, is this what is happening here? Uh, uh, more often than not. So uh, this is what I would recommend individuals to breathe, <laughs> move from impulse to reason, because uh, uh, it may be true, but most likely it is not true. It is either trying to get you to move to a spoofed site, right, and get you your data, or it is trying, to, if it's politically motivated, then it's trying to uh, inst instill hate, right, and division. Uh, uh, there is even a, um, a lot of news now about the cyber warfare on women, right, on high-profile women to dissuade them from going into politics or even mm. uh, uh, positions, for example. So I think without fear monitoring, because that is not something that, that I aim for, but practicality, I think be prepared to always question, right? <laughs> to not go into straight panic mode. I think a healthy level of fear is important uh, to so we stay alert. But from a business perspective, to always connect with the government as well, connect with national cybersecurity to understand what are the common things from an individual perspective, just vigilance, right? To use common sense. All right. Well, we're coming towards the end of the show and uh, we'll see how this pans out in real life. It's great to see how the things that we discuss here on the show uh, have you know, a real impact and, and a grand scale impact in, in the world. And, and I hope you've all find, found this interesting. Moving on to something a little bit more lighthearted. Uh, let's go to the Oracle. <laughs> So the Oracle, we ask you a question about making some predictions about the future and also just what you would really like to know about the future uh, in relationship to whatever topic we've been discussing. Uh, so in this case, we'd like to know, what would you like to know about the world 100 years from now regarding cybersecurity? And what would your predictions about this be? So I, what I would like to know is... Hack is used as a tool for humanity to thrive, or is humanity a slave to tech? Right? I, I, I don't necessarily have a prediction, but I think we are now at an intersection. I think technology can, you know, amazing solutions can really increase humanity in ways we cannot foresee. But life is polarity. There is always the opposite, right? The more we do good, the more there is the opposite. So my prediction is how are we going to navigate the balance, right? It will never be just good. There will always be crime. There will never eradicate crime. Uh, how are we going to keep the basic human touch, right? Connecting socially with each other as much as we connect over digital means. We are more digitally connected and less socially connected, perhaps. So, but that's me. I'm kind of Ethiopian humanist. I uh, I always say I love people in small doses, but even now I would love to love more people in bigger doses. So uh, my prediction, hopefully, would be that we will find the right balance so humanity can thrive. Wonderful, Oscar. If I kind of look at this from the point of view, so if I was sitting here in 1922, 
six years ahead, six years after the world's first manned flight, which covered less distance than the length of a jumbo jet. And what's happened in terms of technology since then? You know, things that, that now are in the early experimental stages, like quantum computing, artificial intelligence, some kind of biocomputing power, uh, harnessing um, the ability to clone stem cells. And you know, what direction could the technology take? I don't know. I do know that um, when quantum computing becomes commercially available, pretty much all of the cryptography we use today will become obsolete overnight. Mm. Now, the chances are that obviously there will be people in parallel looking at using quantum computing in order to make encryption algorithms that quantum computers can't break. How successful they're likely to be, I, 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 who, who can tell? But if you assume, I, I think it's reasonable to assume, um, and I'm hoping, well, I won't know, my great-grandchildren might, that whatever the, the nature of the technology that is available 100 years from now, human beings will continue to be human beings. We don't evolve fast enough to, to think that, that we will be fundamentally different creatures in 100 years' time. Mm. So there will still be a massive underclass. There will still be a criminal underclass or a criminal grouping in society. There will still be you know, a government and power establishment group in society, and then there'll be the rest of us. I, I can't see those things changing spectacularly. I would love to look forward and think, yeah, we, we will achieve the Star Trek kind of world where nation states no longer exist, money no longer exists. We're all committed to bettering ourselves and we have the ability to do all of that um, and still you know, survive and, and thrive and, and no more wars. That would be lovely. Um, can't see it. I really can't see it. But I, I think the, the issues that we'll be tackling there around cybersecurity will probably be much the same as they are today. How do we stop you know, some kiddie with a quantum computer in their, in their pocket? Because by then I imagine they'll be you know, the mobile phone as we think of it now will actually be some kind of tiny ear headset that reads your brain signals and says, when it says, you know, I, want, I need to call my mother, it'll call your mother. Um, those technologies will still need to be secured against abuse. We will still need to educate people around being safe online as well as in the real world. And it's, it's that kind of discussion. And forgive me giving a flagrant plug to our own podcast, but the, you know, the, the concept of the cyber eagles came from the, the eagle's unique ability to look at an entire landscape and a square millimetre of soil that might or might not contain lunch. And so whilst it's able to see, you know, it's, you look around and you can see everything. We, however, can either focus on the broad landscape or we can focus on the immediate task. The eagle can do both simultaneously mm. without reducing its ability to interpret the, the streams of data it's getting. So we may be in a better position because, you know, to, so much of this bad stuff is happening today that it will become common in primary schools for kids to be taught about how to stay safe online. 
and it will be consistent. So I'm hoping that that by then the education system is geared to the the business and organisation technological world that our great grandchildren, great great grandchildren, will be growing up in. I hope that they they'll they'll be taught that technology in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It's how you use it. I would like to see a world in which we understand how to use technology for good and choose to do that rather than for bad. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. So um, next we're going to do the correlation game. Is it? Is it? Is it? This is a game where we give you two variables and you need to guess whether you think these two variables are positively correlated, negatively correlated, or have no correlation at all. In other words, you have to give us a number between negative one and one, which is, I believe, going to be the, the Pearson's correlation coefficient in technical terms, representing how and in what direction these two things that Henrik's about to tell you are related to one another. I failed the math, so let's see how this goes. <laughs> well, right. you, can, you can answer as a team. You can put your put your skills together. And I'm even, I'm so fussy. I want you to tell me what you think the correlation coefficient is. And I ask everyone this. I say, give me 80% confidence intervals on the correlation coefficient so that 8 out of 10 times, that confidence interval will contain the true correlation coefficient. So the two variables are perceptions of corruption within the country versus freedom to make life choices in the country. Based on data from the 2021 World Happiness Report. So the data is at the country level. If it's, if it's perceived highly corruptive, then the perception of freedom is probably low, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that would be my instinct as well. I would, I would say we're, we're heading towards... Well, certainly a negative uh, coefficient, and so you know, I would say it's between minus point eight and minus point nine five as the correlation coefficient between those two states. Okay, I still need a point estimate so we can put you guys on the leaderboard. That's board. true. That's true. We also need. We also well, you could take the midpoint if you like of that. Uh, call it point nine minus point nine. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right. Um, the answer is it's negative 0.49. So you're absolutely right. It is definitely a negative correlation if you perceive your country to be more corrupt. It's also likely that you feel that you don't have much freedom to make your own life choices. It's not the strongest of correlations, but it is, uh, you know. That's a, as these things go, that's actually a rather strong correlation. You mostly tend yes. to get correlations closer closer to negative, positive 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3 in these things, I would say. Yeah. All right. Well, wonderful. It's been such a pleasure having you both on the show. Thanks very much for having us. Please listen to uh, the Cyber Eagle podcast. Uh, it's a very interesting show as well. And uh, I think we might be going on on your show at one point. Uh, so that could also be fun. <laughs>
That is that is in the plan. Absolutely. If we're still we welcome forward to this. I look forward to to we, we look forward to prepare the questions for both <laughs> and David. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna slam us, I think. I think intelligence statistics. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. All right, as usual, this is the Provision Data Podcast. You can get in touch with us at hello at profusion.com or on Twitter at PRFSN. Uh, thank you and see you soon. It's been a pleasure. Coming very soon, the Cyber Eagle podcast is the place to hear about being safe and secure online from a human perspective. In this first series, we'll be discussing some of the broader issues that people encounter when thinking about online safety and security. Oscar O'Connor is a vastly experienced cybersecurity and technology leader with a track record of helping organizations to manage cyber risk. He has a passionate belief that people and organizations have the right to assume that their software and online services they use are safe and secure. Sadly, this is not yet the case, so Oscar works with suppliers and buyers to improve their cybersecurity, privacy and online safety. Nadia El Fatazi is a former senior executive at NATO, the world's largest security and crisis management organization, for whom cyber risk was a real threat to lives. Nadia helps leaders develop readiness and resilience strategies to minimize the pain of cybercrime by building a healthier security culture. 